I'm Adam Coleman, and welcome to a new season of the series officially called The Cosmic Library. The first season was Finnegan and Friends, in which I gathered an eclectic group of thinkers to follow tangents out of Finnegan's Wake, that classic novel of night and dreams. This season follows another night book, and I'm calling season two The Worlds of Scheherazade. Here, we'll follow tangents out of The Thousand and One Nights, that compendium of stories gathered and written down across centuries, across cultures. If last season found a hint of infinite possibilities in the mysteries of James Joyce's language, this season pursues something similar in stories and in the reiteration of stories, night after night after night. The point of the Cosmic Library, in other words, remains to make the most of books that always suggest more than we can grasp, to follow ideas out of infinitely complicated but somehow immediately accessible books, like The Thousand and One Nights, like Finnegan's Wake. In episode two of this season, we're going to talk about the scientific era surrounding the creation of The Thousand and One Nights. In episode three, you'll hear about possible worlds explored in the nights. And in episode four, before we bring it all home in episode five, we'll hear about the night's use of basic survival instinct, the engine for moving ever onward into and out of this most infinite of infinity books. Here's Katie Waldman, a critic with The New Yorker. I love that you call them infinity books because it brings to mind infinity stones. And I think Marvel is probably the standard bearer of this kind of endlessly spinning off cinematic universe, this world that just does not stop. So I don't know if that is an intentional callback. I guess it wasn't intentional, but it's still a useful point of comparison. Marvel's endless stories are helpful to refer to in part because they're relatively easy to explain. Guy gets bitten by a spider, guy becomes Spider-Man. How do we explain The Thousand and One Nights, though? Here's translator Yasmin Seal. It's a very difficult work to introduce. I find that the basic questions about the work that you would expect to be able to get out of the way early on are, in some sense, unresolvable. And yet, for all the challenges of these stories, most of us have some connection to The Thousand and One Nights to Scheherazade, the storyteller of the whole enterprise, to stories like Alibaba and the Forty Thieves or Aladdin. These are stories that have changed our experience one way or another. Here's Hardy White, the host of Miracle Nutrition, a show on the supremely cool radio station WFMU. Well, this is funny. <laughs> because this is, a, this is a big one that I think about all the time. I must have been about five years old. And I had a story record and it was like it was like aladdin or a thousand one nights that was the story but the soundtrack on the story record was rimsky korsakov shahrazad which fits perfect i mean because that's what it's about so this was this woman's voice narrating these and aladdin got up from his stomach or something you know and had the beautiful Rimsky-Korsakov stuff going on, and it's very dramatic. You know, that piece gets real. And I remember listening to it under a blanket. Like, I was sitting on the floor, and I had made, a, like, a tent. And I was taken somewhere. 
And I still think about it all the time. I purposely listen to the piece to trigger that feeling. There's just something about that sort of storytelling. I liked it as a kid, just they didn't even have to be related, like one story after another, and, and maybe the more different, the better. You were flying off into different worlds all the time, and the music acts like a drug because it took me out of my space. The voice and that combined uh, made for an experience that I think has shaped my whole life. So let's get into the nights now, the stories themselves. Here's Yasmin Seal again, who's translated stories from the Thousand One Nights, and who has with her her own translations from the nights. It's a loose collection of stories that are held together by a frame tale, which is really a kind of sack into which all of these other kinds of stories can be thrown in. It's a kind of tangle of styles and registers that there's almost every kind of genre represented from love stories to mystical stories to animal fables, wisdom tales, political stories. The kind of conceit is that all these stories are being told by Shahrazad, the narrator who's having to tell story after story, night after night, to keep at bay her own execution. So it's almost as if this is a kind of feat of virtuosity, parading the incredible variety and ingenuity of styles and forms. I, um, I wondered if you wanted me to read the frame story. Yeah. I could just read the very beginning and then I could sort of explain what happens next. The story goes, but God knows more than us about the truth of times gone by, that long ago in the Sasanian age, two brothers ruled over the islands of India and China, and their names were Shahriyar and Shahzaman. The elder, Shahriyar, was strong on a horse and bold with a blade, never beaten and never burned, quick to revenge and slow to forgive, and his dominion spread to the corners of the land until the far edges fell under his sway, and he chose India for his seat, and to his brother he gave Samarkand. Ten years had gone by when Shahriyar one day desired to see his brother and sent his vizier to fetch him. The vizier, who had two daughters, Shahrazad and Dunyazad, journeyed day and night. And Shahzaman, on hearing he was near, rode out to meet him, came down from his horse and kissed his cheeks, and asked after his brother, Shahriyar. The vizier said that he was well but missed his brother, and Shahzaman promised he would go, and set up the vizier outside the city, saw to his needs, sent him food and fodder, killed many sheep in his honour, and gave him horses and camels and silver. And when he was ready, he charged a lord with ruling in his place, and spent the eve of his departure in his tent, near the vizier, then returned at midnight to the city to bid his wife goodbye. On entering the palace, he found his wife asleep, her limbs entwined in the limbs of a kitchen boy, and the world went dark before his eyes, and he thought, if this is what she does when I have hardly left the city, how will she behave when I am far away? Women have no faith. And he went into a rage. I am a king, he said, and Samarkand is mine. 
but my wife betrays me before my own eyes. In the heat of rage, he drew his sword, drove it into his wife and the cook, and killed the lovers where they lay. Then he dragged them by the heels and threw them from the palace to the ditch below. Leaving the city, he found the vizier and gave the order to go, and to the beat of drums they left, and the king's heart burned in his chest at the memory of what his wife had done. So this is the story of two brothers who both discover that their wives are sleeping with the servants. That was the story of Shah Zaman, who then goes to meet his brother Shahriyar, who is in the same situation. And Shahriyar decides as a result to eliminate the possibility of being betrayed by killing every woman in the kingdom, having spent one night with her. And it's at this point that Shahrazad, who is the daughter of the king's vizier, or prime minister, if you like, volunteers to end the massacre. Here's Mazen Naus, professor at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. There is a trope of, you know, strong women. Some of them are not educated. Some of them are servants, but they are much smarter than the men. And they save men often, like, you know, in many stories, especially the early ones in the 14th century manuscript, which doesn't have all the thousand and one nights, right? It has 35 stories. They're all told, but across 281 nights, okay? That's the earliest surviving manuscript we have. So it doesn't have a thousand and one nights. Was it still titled a thousand one nights? Even yes, when... yes, mm -hmm. it was, it was absolutely. In that manuscript, early on, the women are the heroines, really, and we see the men being weak, being duplicitous, not really being chivalrous at all. So we start kind of seeing the value of women in nation building and society or basically it wasn't nations back then but let's say in kingdom building in educating princes and kings and we see it across multiple stories early on there are patterns then but the stories are also different from each other you know there are stories within stories within stories so you know there are many divergences that happen as one reads Borges, for instance, was quite interested in that, you know, kind of he thought of the knight's structure as a labyrinth. And that brings us to the frame narrative that starts all of this. It's a Persian story. And we know that because in 850 CE, we have an oldest surviving fragment of a thousand knights. Okay, that's the Persian collection of stories as it was translated in Arabic. So there's an 850 fragment that we have written in Arabic that refers to the work that's called A Thousand Nights. You, the listener, have probably heard of another different title too, The Arabian Nights, which was also Arabian Nights Entertainment. With the European translations, it was understood you know, as entertainment more so than anything else. And that's where, when you know, we started seeing that shift in the title. However, there's another issue here. Even though the knights themselves survived in Arabic, it's really a collaborative project, you know, that took place in Asia. It starts with a Persian set of stories called the Thousand Knights that gets translated into Arabic. And then it morphs into a thousand and one nights and more and more stories start making it into the volume. 
And the stories extend basically to India, and there's some Persian stories and many Arabic stories as well, even though it survives in Arabic. Uh, many prefer to say a thousand and one nights rather than the Arabian nights for that matter. And then there's the other issue that it's it's more than entertainment. There's so much more to this huge complex of stories. What do people get wrong beyond or beginning with framing it as entertainments? What, what's being missed? The oldest surviving Arabic manuscript we have is a Syrian manuscript dated in the 1300s. So it's the 14th century uh, Syrian manuscript. That's the one that we have. And it's understood to be kind of a mirror for princes that really is there to instruct through storytelling you know, a prince to rule justly. It has an entertainment dimension, of course, and also the uh, original is, you know, quite licentious and body. And, you know, what survives and what we get usually uh, is the Baudelaireized translations. But it is kind of a multiplex of so many themes and issues, including politics and do, including gender you know, so much more. I mean, it's just explosive. And that's, I think, what keeps it alive. I asked also about the Abbasid Caliphate, during which early records of the Knights appeared. The Abbasids are famous for bringing about the Islamic Golden Age. So in the 8th century, starting with the famous Harun al-Rashid, the Khalifa, or the Caliph in English, in the late 8th century, you know, started the House of Wisdom, which is also known as the Grand Library of Baghdad. I wanted to know how that Abbasid age influenced the Knights. Here's Jim Al-Khalili, author of A History of the House of Wisdom, about which we'll hear more in the next episode. Harun al-Rashid was probably the greatest caliph, emperor, power in the Islamic world, probably uh, throughout the whole of its history. Baghdad was in a golden age then. There was so much wealth and opulence. The counterpart to Harun al-Rashid in Europe was King Charlemagne. And King Charlemagne himself was you know, one of the most powerful medieval kings of Europe. He paled into insignificance compared with Harun al-Rashid. There's a story that he visited Baghdad and, and was just overwhelmed by just the opulence, the grandeur of that city. One of the first cities, I think, in the world that had more than a million population. The famous Harun al-Rashid got all he could find of the writings of antiquity, including the Greeks. He started that mission of translating them into Arabic and into Syriac. And that continued with two more Khalifas after him, uh, Al-Ma'mun and Al-Mansur. And this period, you know, where in Baghdad at that moment of time was the largest city in the world. And it was a hub. It was, you know, the New York City of its time. Everybody came to Baghdad, sciences, translation, literature, philosophy, all of that was happening, you know, in Baghdad. So that's when the nights are written down for the first time. That's where they jump from oral storytelling into manuscript. How did the Thousand and One Nights persist beyond that age? For a long time, it wasn't considered proper literature. So this was kind of low literature. It was not high art. 
And so it was left behind until you can, the European colonizers picked it up again, and then it catches fire again. But during the Abbasid Empire, uh, it was still considered very important because of the multiple themes it carried. But you know, basically the, the trajectory of the Knights in the Arab world itself is that it you know, causes a big splash, it's important in its translation, and then it recedes basically back into oral storytelling in which you, know, you would go to hookah bars and cafes of the time, there would be a storyteller there and they would tell those stories and it only comes back with European interest in it. It catches on. And there's that kind of Orientalist craze that takes place in all of Europe. Here's Yasmin Seal. When I tell people that I'm working on the nights, that I'm translating the nights, there's often a kind of embarrassment that comes back. People feel that they should know the answers to these basic questions. You know, what is this work? Who is it by? When is it from? Where is it from? How does it end? <laughs> How many stories are there? They have some relationship to the title, though even the title is a source of some confusion. Some people know it as the Arabian Nights, some people know the Thousand and One Nights. What I find is that the more I learn about the history of this text, the harder I, I find it to answer these questions. You know, the question of, of when this work dates to is tricky because as far back as we can see, the work is a translation. The earliest fragments we have of the work in Arabic are from the 9th century and it's clear that then when it first comes into Arabic, it's already a translation of an earlier work that is lost to us, which was a Persian work. It's also unclear who, who it's by. Two contributors in particular surprised me when I first learned about them because their contributions happened in France. It's one of the great ironies in the history of the Knights and maybe one of the great ironies in literature that the stories that are most closely associated with the Knights in the minds of many people like Aladdin, Ali Baba, stories that have really become iconic and, and archetypally associated with this work, were never part of the original collection in Arabic, or rather are not found in any of the Arabic manuscripts that have survived. These are stories that appear for the first time in print in, in French, and for a long time were thought to have been added by the French translator, Antoine Galland, and invented by him. In fact, we know that these stories were told to Galland by a, a young Syrian man he had the fortune of meeting in Paris in the early 1700s, who seems to have either made up these stories or been told them and adapted them. So a story like Aladdin is really the product of a collaboration, a Franco-Syrian collaboration, I would say. And there's been a, a tendency to make a sharp distinction between these so-called orphan stories, the stories that were published in French and, and have no Arabic precedent, and the Arabic stories, which by contrast are considered authentic. But I think, again, the whole history of the work is a history of collaboration and of impurity, if you like, across cultures and across other kinds of boundaries, high and low culture, high and popular culture, oral and written culture. So the history of a story like Aladdin, which is conventionally described as a kind of aberration, an inauthentic addition to the work, is in fact, I think, typical of how many of the other stories came about. Does the title Arabian Nights work, or 
is a thousand one nights more accurate arabian nights is the title that was given to the first english translations in the 18th century i happen to think that we should stop using this title it's a made up title it was invented in england it has very little to do with the arabic text the arabic title is al flayla wa layla a thousand and one nights or a thousand nights and one night as far as i know in every other language it is called a thousand and one nights but in english it was given this other title the complete title was the arabian nights entertainments and the word arabian had only just come into english it came into english in 1711 and it was the adjective for arabia which refers to a kind of fantasy place it's not a real place it's a bit like the word orient it refers more to a place as imagined by those early english readers rather than the actual societies that these texts were produced in i happen to think that we should stop calling it the arabian nights i think that word has done a lot of damage and has perpetuated this sense that the nights are the product of some strange distant world when in fact the history of this text is completely interwoven with the history of european literature it is not alien to it the title of your norton edition is the annotated arabian nights unfortunately i lost that battle the publishers felt that um I'm I'm still not really sure I understand the rationale but they felt that Arabian Nights was was a better known title but they have assured me that for the complete nights which will take a couple more years to produce we might be able to call it the thousand and one nights but this annotated book is a work of many parts with many different contributors and it was I didn't really have an editorial say but I think it's a shame The Thousand and One Nights title nudges us to think about these stories in terms of their many iterations in which each story promises another. This potentially infinite kind of storytelling can mean thinking about infinitely branching ideas rather than simply monotonously trudging from sequel to sequel in the manner of let's say superhero franchises. Infinity books can be cooler in other words than Marvel's Infinity Stones. To Katie Waldman, I said I like the idea of wrestling some of this infinity storytelling from the Disney machine. Well, and from the whole idea of IP that now you have these properties that just need to be mined and mined and like finally stripped for parts. I mean the hope is that they will keep giving up treasures, but I think that's up for debate. How do morals work in stories that go on and on and on? We're used to the traditional I don't know children's story ends with like and that's why you don't do blank you know they, a short confined story sometimes ends with a, with a simple moral but stories that go on and on and on seem to evade that kind of closure and maybe even moral closure what what is the moral dimension to this kind of narrative on one hand as you say without an ending there are no real stakes a death doesn't have to be a permanent death anything can happen no matter is completely resolved and so in a way there's always a second chance there's always a possible redemption or conversely there could always be someone who breaks bad in the next act and so i think you're living in a kind of eternally liminal place where meanings aren't fixed and morals aren't fixed 
But then I'm thinking about soap operas where the moral stakes are so annoyingly clear. You're like bludgeoned over the head with like, this is the villain and this is the sweet, innocent person. And they last forever. So so maybe like in the moment, people's roles are extremely clear. They're just subject to switch up. But I think you're right that, again, back to Marvel, if a story doesn't end, then it's really hard to come to some kind of ethical conclusion about the right way to behave. You can't look back as an actor in this narrative and say, well, I acted this way and it turned out like that. So here's my conclusion about whether that action was good or bad. Thank you for listening to The Cosmic Library. Guests this season include Katie Waldman, a critic at The New Yorker, Yasmin Seal, translator of The Thousand and One Nights, Jim Al-Khalili, theoretical physicist and author of The House of Wisdom, Mazin Naus, professor in the English department at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, and Hardy White, host of Miracle Nutrition on WFMU. 